morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Andrew, and I just want to add my welcome to all of those uh, that have already welcomed you here. And uh, we're, we're uh, really excited to continue to go through our When in Doubt sermon series. And one of the patterns that we're going to keep during this time is we're going to have a question and answer period after the sermon. So you'll see a a screen behind me now, you'll, you'll find a link you can follow or a QR code you can scan. This information will be back on the screen at the end of the sermon, so you'll be able to do it there as well. Uh, and so we're going to continue to talk about and wrestle through some things, and you very well may feel differently than me, or have some questions that pop up that you would like clarified during the course of the sermon. Uh, so we wanted to continue to encourage you to, to actively listen along, uh, write your questions down, and then we'll give you the opportunity to share them anonymously at the end of the sermon. And then um, uh, Emily will ask me your questions, and I will do my best to answer them, hopefully in a way that you find satisfactory. But no promises with that either. This last uh, Wednesday, uh, my small group got together at the ministry center, and we found a book of Bible trivia sitting there. And, uh, and so then my friend Reg decided that he would try to show off some of his Bible trivia, and he said, who was the only orphan in the Bible? I said, I don't know, Reg. And he said, it was Joshua, son of Nun. Which, of course, I can't take this line. I'm a, I have to show him up, right? So then I try to show off some of my uh, Bible trivia. And you've probably heard this one before. I asked him, I said, well, Reg, who's the smallest person in the Bible? And he said, Zacchaeus. I'm like, good guess. Others will go with Nehemiah. They're also wrong. It's actually Peter because he fell asleep on his watch. There you go. And, of course, I've shared with many of you who know me, my favorite sport is baseball. And that's because it's, it's very biblical. It talks about baseball right at the start, Genesis 1-1, in the big inning. So, so that's why true Christians love baseball. Those are jokes. Those are jokes. And I think it's good to start on a bit of a lighthearted note because Genesis 1, which is going to be in our crosshairs here today, can, can be a fairly controversial topic. Uh, many of you, and myself included, will have very strong ideas and a perspective on how we read this part of the Scripture. And so this is a good time for me to, to really refer to not just this sermon, but the rest of our series. You have been very open and honest with me in sharing these doubts. And, and I want to return that by being uh, very careful. I want to, to know that my commitment to you as we work through these questions is to handle these doubts with care, humility, and an open mind. And what I ask from you is that you listen to some of these answers and work through it with me, that you return the favor. So let's work together with care, with humility, and with an open mind. Today we are asking the question, can creation and science coexist? And as you sent in your doubts and your questions, this one was the topic that in some form came up the most often. So I think there is a good reason why we are digging into this together. And the short answer, can creation and science coexist? The answer is yes. Let's pray. <laughs> the answer is yes, but we are going to take some time to understand why. That's what we're going to do this morning. In 2014, there was a fairly high-profile uh, debate between uh, creationist Ken Ham and uh, TV personality Bill Nye. And they were trying to debate this, this idea of creation or evolution. 
And there was a number of reasons why this debate was not very valuable, uh, not the least of which is the fact that neither Kent Ham nor Bill Nye are experts in the fields they were claiming to represent. But it also perpetuated this idea that I think has really been at home in the evangelical church for a few generations, this idea that science and faith are inevitably in conflict. They are opposed to one another. They can't coexist. But that is not true. Faith and science are not in conflict when each respects the realm of the authority of the other. So as we looked at the trustworthiness of Scripture last week, we recognized that the Bible is uninterested in teaching modern scientific details. That is not its goal or its aim. Scripture is much more focused on teaching us about the nature of God and our relationship with Him. That is the matters in which Scripture speaks on authoritatively. Science, on the other hand, is extremely limited to just observing and drawing conclusions from the physical world. It has no ability to make existential or faith-based claims. That is no longer science. Dr. Dennis Lamoureux is, is a really interesting person to bring into this conversation because he is, uh, has a PhD in biology and a PhD in theology and currently works as a professor at University of Alberta. And Dr. Lamoureux did a TEDx talk shortly after the Ham versus Nye debate. And he talked a little bit more optimistically about how faith and science can coexist because they have different aims and goals. And this is an example that he shared. You'll see this slide come up behind me here. He'll, he'll point to what science can observe about a cell. So at the very bottom, you'll see that a standard cell is one one-thousandth of an inch. It's very tiny but it has one full yard of DNA in which there's enough information to fill 30 volumes of an encyclopedia. That's incredible. There's that much information in one microscopic bit, uh, uh, one microscopic cell. And so what Dr. Lamoureux would contend is that that is all that science can tell you. Stop, full stop. That information is a scientific claim. Science can claim no more than that. And then as we look at this information that science has provided for us, then everybody who is a Christian or an agnostic or an atheist, everyone will take a step of faith and draw a conclusion, a faith conclusion from that evidence. And so if you were to be an atheist, you would say, no, uh, my reason would, would lead me to the conclusion that despite all of this information in one cell, that this is all a product of, a natural, uh, um, of natural selection and ev evolution, and, and I don't believe there's any evidence of design here. Where another person could look at that same scientific information and then take that step of faith saying, wow, look at how incredible and complex this information is. I believe this is evidence for intelligent design. And so you see here, science provides part of it, and it always requires a step of faith to draw conclusions from that information. It is possible for faith and science to coexist when they understand the realm of one another. Scholar Ian Barber provides us with a spectrum of how faith and science can, can interact. On one extreme, you'll find it in conflict, which again, I think has been the, the norm for the evangelical church for a few generations. And then we can move to dialogue, where faith and science can talk to one another. And then integration, where we can fully have these things work in tandem. And then lastly, independence, in which they both stay in their own lane and never have anything to do with one another. Now, both extremes are unhelpful. 
There are moderate views of dialogue and integration that work best when science and religious faith recognize their respective spheres of authority. They're not at odds with one another necessarily. It's too bad to have to make this point because the coexistence of faith and science has been true for many, many years prior to this. So many important scientific claims have been made in the mind of, of a believer in the pursuit of knowing God more. Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Michael Faraday, Galileo, Blaise Pascal, and many others viewed their scientific endeavors as an act of worship. And I love this quote from Nicholas Copernicus, who discovered that the earth involved, uh, revolved around the sun and not vice versa. Copernicus said, To know the mighty works of God, to comprehend his wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate in degree the wonderful working of his laws, surely all of this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High, to whom ignorance could not be more grateful than knowledge." For Copernicus and so many others that have gone before us in the, science and in the sciences, the goal was to know God more, to know his creation more. That this pursuit of knowledge was never at the expense of their faith. It was an act of worship. And there's nothing that prohibits this from being true today. Now, ironically, it was the church that rejected Copernicus's claim about the earth revolving around the sun showing that when the church also does not leave itself open to what science has to say, it does not look good. Now, we should not listen to this polarizing rhetoric that these two things, faith and science, have to be in conflict, because that's just not true of the situation today. In Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, he goes back and points to two different um, studies that were done with this relationship between what, what, what scientists believe about faith the two studies, uh, two famous studies uh, were supporting the contention that, that scientists still had faith, and these studies were done in 1916 and again in 97. The American psychologist James Luba conducted the first survey of scientists, asking them if they believed in a God who actively communicates with humanity, at least through prayer. So not just believing in an impersonal force, believing in a God who would communicate at least through prayer. 40% said that they did. 40% said they did not, and 20% were not sure. So in many ways, it's completely split down the middle. In 97, Edward Larson and Larry Whitham repeated this survey asking the very same question, and they found that the numbers had not changed significantly in 80 years. So it is just not true that scientists can't have faith or that these things have to be in conflict. We need to know what science can and cannot do, what the goal of Scripture is in teaching with authority, and then we can find a way for these things to coexist. When it comes to creation and science, which is the specific question we're looking at this morning, can we still see this dialogue and integration, or are we only left with conflict? In particular, biblically, we're going to look at the first two chapters in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, which is really the origin stories of the universe and humankind. And then we're going to look at this, and if I'm reading between the lines of these questions you've asked me, you're really saying, well, how does this work with Big Bang cosmology and biological evolution? what um, atheists and or maybe even agnostic scientists would use these theories to counteract the creation account in Genesis. So what do we mean? Well, the Big Bang is how astronomers explain the way the universe began. It is the idea that the universe began as just a single point, then expanded and stretched to grow as large as it is right now, and it is still stretching. 
That's what we mean. We're defining these things for us to help give clarity. In biology, evolution is the change in the characteristics of a species over several generations and relies on the process of natural selection. The theory of evolution is based on the idea that all species are related and gradually change over time. So I'm going to assume that these are some of the big scientific questions behind the doubt that was raised and that we're going to keep those in the back of our mind. But since I am not a scientist, we're not going to dive into the deep end on Big Bang cosmology and um, biological evolution. Instead, we are going to focus our time on Genesis 1 to 2. And we're going to look at what Scripture teaches with clarity and with authority. And then we're going to step back and see, can these things coexist? So, last week, when we went over the importance of Scripture, we set up a few ground rules for how we can read the Scriptures responsibly. Right? So that the Bible is authoritative because it is inspired by the Spirit. It is inerrant in all that it claims to be true. And it is illuminated, meaning the Spirit is still active in making the Word of God come alive to each and every one of us. And while I listed those ground rules last week, we are going to work through them together so that we can read Genesis 1 and 2 in this way. The first ground rule was that the message of the Bible must be understood by the original audience. So if we ever have an interpretation of Scripture that only makes sense to us in our own modern context and wouldn't have been understood by the people thousands of years ago, then it is not a good interpretation. And when it comes to creation, when we think of it scientifically, the creation account in Scripture then is based on an ancient scientific understanding as opposed to a modern scientific understanding. If modern science were to be in view of Genesis 1, it would have made no sense to the original hearers. And this is not any different than we would treat any other passage in the Bible. Again, last week, I brought up a a diagram that was similar to this, which is the three-tier universe, would have been an ancient Near Eastern understanding of the universe. And not just the Israelites. It would have been the other cultures around them that have similar drawings to this. Their understanding of the universe was that there was waters above, called the heavens. And then there was a firmament, which was holding the waters above. And in the firmament, God had placed the the sun and the moon and the stars. And then you had the waters below. And up out of that was the earth, which was on foundations and would not move. That is the ancient understanding of the universe. And I want to leave this diagram up here and read for you the first 19 verses of Genesis 1. And I want you to think along and read along and ask yourself, is this an accurate depiction of what Genesis is teaching? Is it teaching to this understanding of the universe? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits trained fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And so when we see a diagram like this and go back to Genesis 1, I think we begin to see that there was a clear understanding of the waters above and below and the expanse or the firmament and God placing the, the sun and the moon and the stars. This is really truly an indication of how those people understood the world to be many, many years ago. So it is inaccurate and unfair of us to expect Genesis to give details on modern science as we understand it today. That is not its view. That's not its aim. That is not what would have been understood by the original hearers. So because Genesis is not focused on science, any of the scientific details we find here are made to fit an ancient point of view. And this is all an example of what we call accommodation. What do I mean by that term? Accommodation is when God uses language that is understandable and, and easy for us to know to explain a concept that is far beyond our ability to comprehend. And there's perhaps no better example of this than the creation of the entire universe. We are encountering something, something that God did, and he wants us to know what he did, and he knows we cannot grasp it in its fullness, and so he uses language that we can grab onto so that we can understand as much of what he did as possible. And here, the creation of the entire universe is described as in God speaking things into existence in these days. And a big, unknowable miracle of creation is now made more knowable through the language that Scripture uses. I think a, a good picture that I have in my mind that helps me imagine this is, is just thinking of an Israelite elder sitting around a campfire with younger students, with, with people that are learning from him. And he looks them in the eye. He says, in the beginning. And he tells them a true story about what Yahweh, the one true God, has done. We need to understand this in the original context. The second ground rule is also very important, and that is that genre makes a difference. And we know this to be true in any of our reading, not even with the Bible. If you sit down with a newspaper, you read it differently than if you are reading poetry. Or when you go to the library and you pick out a book from the fiction section, you read it differently than when you take home an autobiography. So genre matters because the, the type of uh, literature we're reading gives us insight into what the author intends for us to know as true in every given instance. But what genre is Genesis 1 to 2? This is the question at the very heart of the matter. This is the reason why we can't seem to have consensus on how to always approach this part of the Bible because we can't always settle on what type of genre we are reading. Some will say that this is a myth. 
And the myth might uh, be helpful as far as painting the picture of how extraordinary it is and of how, how big in scope this story is, but with it comes all these questions. Myth sounds like a constructed story, something fabricated, something untrue, untrustworthy. And we know that the Bible is not those things. And so myth can be an unhelpful term. Others will say this is poetry or song because they see the many different ways that figurative language is, is used here. And yet even that falls short of, of, of the fact that God was doing something in particular and at a specific moment in time. And yet others will say that this is historical narrative. You just read it day by day by day. And while that makes sense in a very simple or literal reading of the word, it also tends to ignore some of the different interpretations that we need, like how would it have been understood by the original audience and, and what type of language is really being used here. So each one of these approaches seems to have questions as well as answers. I want to put forward today that Genesis has three different sections that show us a clear shift in genre. And the analogy I like to use is a, um, a lens of a, of a camera. Pretend it's a video camera or a, or a camera you're taking pictures. And at one point, if you're trying to take a picture of something very, very big, you have to zoom way out to see the whole picture. And when you're zoomed way out, you can't even notice the fine little details, but you get the whole view of what's going on. The big picture is the focus. And then if you want to see a little bit more detail, you'll zoom in a little bit closer. And then, then more and more, these specifics are in your view. And then if you really want to get up close and personal, you'll zoom right in. And thanks to high-definition resolution, you can see every pore on the preacher's face if you get those live stream cameras all the way in. No one wants that level of detail, right? Well, I think that there's a, lot, a good reason to believe that Genesis has its genre in, um, organized in this way. For example, when we read Genesis 1, as we just read a portion together, in the beginning, we see that we are, we're, we're, we're taking a picture of the biggest thing imaginable. We're zoomed all the way out. We're looking at the creation of the entire known universe. And so these small, fine details aren't the point of the story. It is the big picture of what God is doing that we are meant to, to see and to focus on and to understand. And we can call this cosmic history. It is the very biggest of big pictures. In Genesis 2, we zoom in a little bit closer. Have you ever noticed that Genesis seems to have two different creation accounts? There is Genesis 1. We talk about that often. And then in Genesis 2, it seems to start over again. And it's not giving a second or an additional creation account. What the Bible is doing is it's zooming in from this cosmic point of view. And now in Genesis 2, when we see that the details of God creating humankind, we have people, Adam and Eve. We have relationship between these people with them and with God and with their sons and siblings and so on and so forth. We are closer. We've zoomed in. We have more of these details. And Genesis itself supplies us with some of this evidence. In Genesis 2.4, we see this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That word generations, the Hebrew word there means accounts. These are the accounts. This is the history of when the earth and the heavens were created. I think in many ways, Genesis 2-4 is the summary statement of everything that we've read up to that point. This is the cosmic history of how God created everything. And then in, chapter, in verse 5 and going forward, we are reading a different type of material, a different genre. Another evidence for this 
is the way that the Hebrew word for Adam is used. Adam is not just a personal name for Adam. It is the Hebrew word for all of mankind. And in Genesis 1, when the biggest picture is in view, uh, Adam refers to all of mankind. It says in 126, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish. It's talking about humankind. But in Genesis 2, even if it's not a particular uh, personal name of Adam, it refers to a specific man where it says in Genesis 2, um, 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. We are no longer talking all, all humankind. We're talking about a specific person. We've zoomed in and we need to read it differently and scripture itself gives us this clues. The stories we read then in Genesis 2 all the way through Genesis 11 are historical, but they're still unlike any history that we have ever known or could relate to. It is history of a world that we have no concept of. We have no idea what the Garden of Eden would have truly been like to walk and talk with God in the cool of the morning. We don't know what it would like to live in a world where people lived over 900 years, where giants called the Nephilim roamed the earth, where there was a catastrophic flood that wiped out population, where there was a confusion of language at Babel and then there's a, there's just the dispersal of people across the known world. These are stories that we know happened and are true and trustworthy because they're in Scripture, but we don't read them the same way that we would read other history books because they represent a world vastly different than our own. We can call this primeval history. And while we are talking about history, it is a unique type of history and we need to handle with care. So the big picture is still the main focus. When we come to the story of the flood, for example, what Scripture wants to highlight for us is how seriously God takes sin and how important and permanent his covenant was with Noah. We, we ought not to get too caught up in the details of how all the animals would have fit on the ark or how all the, the meat-eating animals would have survived during that time. We should not get hung up on those details because the bigger picture is still primarily in view. And once we get to Genesis 12, we zoom in all the way. We meet Abraham, and the story slows down dramatically, giving full focus and voice to those details. We know what kind of person he is, what hopes and dreams he had, where he lived, where he traveled to, who he married, who he interacted with. And once we meet Abraham, we are finally at historical narrative, where we can find a true and responsible date and time for this person to have existed in human history. We know approximately when and where he lived. And time frame and chronology can now be trusted. So all that to say, don't be overly hung up on the small details of Genesis 1 and 2. Because the small details are not the point of the story. One final important aspect of, gen of the genre of Genesis 1 and 2 is that they are written as a polemic. And a polemic is another nice scholarly term, but it's actually very simple to understand. A polemic is a story that would be written in a, a fashion similar to another well-known story. But it would be different in certain ways, and it was intentionally different to highlight those differences as the main point of the story it's telling. So I will give you a very oversimplified example. Let's pretend that there is a parable well known. And the parable tells a story of a young girl in a yellow dress who saved her money to go buy a lollipop. And when she got to the candy store, she paid for that lollipop and enjoyed it greatly. Now let's pretend that that's a very pervasive parable. We all know it. 
And yet there's this other story that tells of a girl in a yellow dress who saved her money to go buy a lollipop. And when she went to the candy store, the owner said, keep your change. I want to give you this lollipop as a gift. It's free to you. That second story is a polemic. It's written in a very similar fashion, but where it differs is the whole entire reason for the story. We learned a lesson that this candy owner is gracious and generous and wanted to give her a gift. The beginning of Genesis shares many similarities with other ancient Near Eastern creation myths. And yes, those other stories are myths. And where it is different gives us an example. It basically highlights for us exactly what the main ideas are. I don't have time. We don't have time to go through all these different stories. I want to give you a quote from Gordon Wenham, who has looked at these stories and says this. As Genesis retells familiar oriental stories about the origins of the world, it dramatically transforms them theologically. Polytheism, many gods, is replaced by monotheism, one god. Divine weakness by almighty power. Human beings are no longer seen as a sideline, but central to the divine purpose. God looks after man by supplying him with food, not the other way around. So when we read Genesis 1-2 to with genre in mind, then I think the main points become more and more clear. Ground rule number three, we also need to use Scripture to help us understand other parts of Scripture. So when we come to a, a portion of the Bible that we're confused by, it seems hard to interpret properly, then we can look elsewhere into the Bible to see what it has to say. We use this a lot when we were studying Revelation together because Revelation referred to the Old Testament over and over and over again. But even our first few chapters of Scripture, we can use the same ground rule. One best example I can think of was this debate around origins. We have the origin of the universe. We also have the origin of humankind. Was Adam a historical person? Did he exist in history? Well, if there's some debate for us in that, then we can look elsewhere in Scripture and we find out that the New Testament is not silent on this matter. For example, in Luke chapter 3, Luke wants to uh, give a genealogy of Jesus that grounds Jesus in human history. And to do this genealogy, he begins with Jesus and works his way backward. So it begins in Luke 3.23. He says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then he goes through a lot, a lot, a lot of names. And he rewinds the tape all the way back to where he concludes in verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So for Luke... Part of his argument of why Jesus was a descendant of, of Adam, why, why he was a historical person, was because Adam was also a historical person. And then later on, in his letter to the Corinthians, Luke treats Adam in the same fashion. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 22 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And Paul is being very clear. Jesus, fully human, did something in human history that had a, a dramatic and drastic effect on how we relate to God. In the same way, Adam has a person in human history that did something that had a drastic effect on how we relate to God. The New Testament treats Adam as a historic person, and that helps us understand the same which I believe also helps us encourage us that we are to read Genesis 1 and 2 as slightly different genres. So where does all of this leave us? 
We've had a lot of information. We've used these ground rules. Have we settled this debate? Can creation and science coexist? Well, I want to frame it one last way. I think we need to look at this in terms of freedoms and limitations. Francis Schaeffer was, uh, was a scholar that died in the 80s. And uh, C. John Collins says this about him. Francis Schaeffer articulated an approach to origins that he called freedoms and limitations. There is a range of reasonable scenarios by which we may address the apparent conflicts between the Bible and the sciences, and yet there are limits to this range, limits set both by basic biblical concepts and by good human judgments. So here's what I want to propose. When we read Genesis 1 and 2 with our ground rules of interpretation, then we need to be able to look at what is easily understood as absolutely necessary to the biblical account of origins. And these are our limitations. These are the things that are the pillars of truth, of God's account of creation. And we must believe these things to be true. Otherwise, we are now violating what Scripture teaches. These are the limitations that we have. And what are they? I would say our first limitation or truth is that Yahweh is the one and only creator God. There was no polytheism. There was only God. He is the only God. It is just him. He didn't require any help. He didn't need any assistance. He didn't have to do anything. There was just him, and he spoke, and it all came to be. There was only one true creator God. Our second limitation or truth is that Yahweh reigns supreme over all creation. He he did not need to battle against other competing deities. He did not need to overcome any weakness on himself. He did not need to, to get humans to help him out. God spoke and it came to be. God was and is and will always be in supreme control of all that he has created to be. God is sovereign. God alone is sovereign. And the sovereignty began at the very beginning. Our third truth is that Yahweh created humankind in his image. Human beings are central to the creation story. They are the crown jewel of creation. It is not like other ancient Near Eastern myths in which humanity was enslaved by gods or seen as a distraction. God created us in his own image, and this gives every human being immeasurable value, dignity, and worth. God created humanity in his image as male and female, which speaks to the equality and necessity of gender in his design, which is another sermon altogether. God also gave humanity the task of being stewards of his creation. He he made this all. He created it, and it was good. And then he said to us, take care of what I have made. Be good stewards of this creation. That is a task and a role that he has assigned to us as his image bearers. And then the final, the very final limitation or pillar that must be true is that Yahweh made Sabbath rest the goal of creation. We haven't talked about that this very much because it hasn't been very close to home with our conversation. But, but it is not the, the creation of mankind. That's not, humankind wasn't where God stopped. He stopped creating. But it was that seventh day where he rested, where he instituted the Sabbath for our benefit, as Jesus teaches. And it is the Sabbath rest that is still is, is really representative of our eternal hope. Sabbath rest being God at perfect peace with his people. We read uh, the author of Hebrews talk about this in Hebrews 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Meaning our faith still longs for the Sabbath rest with God. 
when we experience perfect peace with him again. So these are our limitations. Can we bring those back up one more time, Sheldon? You take a drink and then you can bring back our limitations. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, these things have to be true. They have to. They are our limitations. And hopefully we can all agree on these and then afterwards allow for maximum freedom within these bounds. And if we do that, it would mean that everyone who is a young earth creationist who believes that God created in six literal days and the earth is 6,000 years old, that all the old earth creationists who believe that there was a figurative six days and that the earth is much older than 6,000 years, and even all the evolutionary creationists, those who believe that God employed evolution to his own creative ends, would all hold a viable biblical worldview that interacts with science and does not violate those limitations that must be true. Limitations and then freedom. And all of these views have issues and questions, but none of them undermine the authority of Scripture. The last point that I would like to make is that it is vital to extend freedom within these limitations so that we do not place unnecessary obstacles to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as much as as creation is an important thing to understand and to believe, and we need to interpret it with care, and it should be important to us in our own theology and our beliefs, it is secondary to the saving nature of Jesus Christ. And we ought not to take a secondary issue and say, you have to read Genesis this way or you don't believe in Jesus. Because then we have placed an obstacle that could get in the way of eternal life for somebody. Because Christ alone transforms lives and gives the gift of grace and eternal life. But really, when we talk about creation, we're always talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the the Word was God. Jesus has been, and is today, and always will be, Creator, Lord, Savior, and Sustainer. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being with us here. I thank you for your spirit being present and to continue to guide us into your truth. God, I pray that as we continue to um, worship and continue to interact and question and answer, that you would again uh, be here to allow us to, to have good conversations with one another and to look to your word to guide us when we feel confused. I pray that at the end of the day, we would be completely blown away by the beauty and the majesty of creation, that we would be just just humbled by the amazing power that you have to not just create but sustain the entire universe and that everything that we learn about this world would be an act of worship to you and draw us closer to Jesus. Amen.